This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And in our studio now, we have Ken Melman. He is the co-head of Global Impact and the global head of public affairs over at KKR. Ken, great to have you in studio with Carol and myself. Appreciate it. Um, So a lot of interesting things going on there at your shop. And I think it's interesting to think about how this is really in some ways an evolution of a strategy that you've been working on for a number of years around ESG, now moving into the business of really investing in impact. Talk about kind of that transition to putting money to work. Well, we think they're both very relevant, right? So the first is, how do you find trends that are more societal in nature that maybe are, for example, helping the world to adapt and mitigate climate change, helping the world harness the fourth industrial revolution, dealing with questions like how do we reduce the amount of waste we use across the board? Those are areas where there are two things happening. One, there is an urgent public need. And at the same time, there's an opportunity for companies to get paid very well to address that need. And over the last 10 years, we at KKR have increasingly invested around those themes. So we've invested $4.8 billion in 31 companies around those themes. Uh, $1.6 billion was invested in companies focused on helping with workforce development, Mm. helping people learn. $800 million around clean water, companies whose core product was addressing that challenge. And what we've learned is you can achieve strong returns, private equity returns, which is helping you to do well, but you can also do good in a very measurable way. And so all that has come out of your more traditional sort of usually buyout, you know, kind of private equity. And arm. at the same time, we've also learned that you can operate your companies, whether those companies are impact or any kind of company, in a way that, for example, reduces their environmental footprint. So over the last 10 years, at more than 50 KKR companies, we've had a systematic focus on reducing energy use, water use, the use of forest products, and the generation of waste. At the first 25 of those companies, we saved $1.25 billion in either reduced costs or in things we used to have to pay for, like having your garbage hauled away, that you actually get paid for if you recycle it. And so we've done that systematically around environmental optimization. We've done that systematically in a number of our companies around engaging the workforce, making them owners of the company too. And we think if you combine these two together, it's an incredibly powerful force to invest behind. How has, I feel like ESG we've been talking about for decades, for a while, right? And I, and I feel like it was a niche investment. It was a feel-good kind of thing. It definitely feels like it has changed dramatically and kind of moving into its newest iteration called impact investing. What has changed in terms of being able to do something that's good, whether it's for the environment, whether it's for people, but also find that performance as well? What's I changed in our investment? A arena? number of things have changed. The most important thing that's changed is the world has changed. So we live in a time that I call the era of externalities. Because of the radical technology of the internet and of social media, you now know how the food you eat could affect your health in future years. You now know if your water's polluted in a way you didn't before. We now know broadly many companies had terrible cultures 
when it came to how women and others were treated. All of that is now known to the world. And when that happens, when the world changes like that, consumer habits change. So let me give you an example. In China today, there is, and there has been over the last 10 years, an increased focus, partly because of the tragedy of the melamine situation, on the quality of the food supply. Is the dairy, is the chicken, is the pork that you are consuming safe? Is it reliable? Were the workers safe and protected when they were involved in producing that food? All of those kinds of questions are things that we understand today that perhaps we didn't understand 10 years ago. Similarly, as more and more people are increasingly likely to have their careers, not just their jobs, their careers disrupted, I saw a statistic that by 2030, 375 million people around the world will have to switch, not their employer, their career. Who's going to prepare them for that? The reality is there are a whole lot of companies that are involved in that. Companies involved in lifetime learning and helping you, often it's online, not always, learn in a differentiated way based on figuring out how you solve problems or figuring out where there are job opportunities in the future. And because of these global changes, there is now real opportunity for investors to help build out companies and industries that will solve these critical needs. So that's one thing that's, I think, changed. The second thing I think that if you think about, I'll just speak for private equity where we're focusing mm -hmm. this strategy, private equity as an industry has over the years evolved. Right. So if Not you just think, financial engineering. For sure. So starting in the 90s, many firms like ours said efficiency is already found in many of our companies, but operational improvement is something we can do. So we started a, we partnered with an organization called KKR Capstone, 75 people full-time who help our companies improve their operations. Then probably eight or nine years ago, while we kept focusing on that, we had an opportunity to help take companies that were regional or national champions and make them global, make them global leaders. How do you help companies go global? And that's something private equity did. If you step in your back and you say, what do companies need today and what does the world need today? I would submit the ability to invest behind some of these themes and the ability to operate your companies in a way that makes your employees more engaged, that makes sure you have a healthier workforce, that focuses on environmental optimization, that reduces the amount of waste you generate, that says your supply chain is going to be responsible, all big opportunities. All right. Only about 20 seconds left, but you're also the former chair of the RNC. What's the most investable thing you can do in this time of political turmoil? I think the most investable thing you can do is invest behind companies that offer real solutions that consumers are demanding. Solutions that you're going to need because of these big challenges, which is why our first investment in BBP around energy efficiency saves money, reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Whatever your politics, it makes sense. Ken Melman, co-head of Global Impact for KKR. Come back and see us and let us know how it's going. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Everybody gets high. Everybody gets low. These are uh, yes. Interest rates, they go down, they go up, uh, and it's an interesting week for the Federal Reserve. Of course, it's last meeting of 2018. It begins tomorrow. It's a two-day meeting, and then, of course, we'll get a decision on Wednesday, followed by a press, re uh, press conference. Closely watched, Jason, to say the least. So let's get into this with uh, Frank Sorrentino. He's back with us, chairman and CEO at Connect One Bank, uh, back in our interactive broker studio. 
Nice to have you here. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. I was looking at some of the notes you sent over and some of the uh, writings you've been, and you you say we're get ready for a return to normalcy. Uh, what's normal? <laughs> well, you know, you got to hand it to the Fed. Since uh, 2008, they've really engineered um, you know this recovery that we've seen in this country, and they've really been steadfast about providing the liquidity, providing the stability that this country needs in order to get back on its feet uh, and do what it needs to do. And so. They certainly had a plan for how and when to unwind all the unusual measures that they took. Right. And so now they're executing that plan. Um, I think that in the face of what's happening in the general economy, which is things are getting better. There's great employment numbers, a lot of strength showing up in the economy. And so for people to be surprised that the Fed is sticking to its plan to get interest rates back to normal, not not like we're not in a... In Still a, in low, a, by Right, we're not in a, a um, harsh environment in any way, shape, or form. But just to get to normal, if you look at any, you know, any statistics over the last 200 years, we're nowhere near normal yet. I'm curious, though, because I feel like Jason and I have a lot of guests who come in, and I think everybody's worried about what's to come in 2019. We, we talk about earnings slowdown, what it means potentially for an economic slowdown here in the United States, and we're seeing it certainly globally. What are you seeing in terms of the loan environment and the businesses that you're working with? Tell us what kind of economy that describes to you. So again, we're, you know, from my perspective at Connect One Bank, we are a New York-centric bank. And right. so my comments, I think, have to be taken in that context. But the clients that we're talking to today are feeling quite bullish about mm. what they see, how they feel, their ability to hire good talent, the things that are coming into this marketplace, uh, and how the economy has just been developing over the last two, two or so years. Uh, so, you know, when you take that in the context of what the Fed's doing, you say, well, maybe they're headed in the right direction. And so you say all that, and it jives with what we've been hearing. And yet we come in, we look at our Bloomberg every day, and there's yeah. a lot of red on that screen. And investors very nervous, increasingly nervous, especially, you know, from October uh, really on. So so what's the what's the disconnect here? What are did investors you, so worked up about? Do you read the newspaper in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> did you check the tweets this morning? Um, there's lots to worry about. Yeah. And, you know, I actually feel like we're in this classic climbing a wall of worry scenario where we're truly worried about things we should be worried about. And it's actually tempering or tampering some of um, you know, our decision making. And I think that's good. I, you know, Is everyone fears, I think everyone fears this environment where things just go straight up and everything feels great. And how we you know what could get in the way of this, as opposed to what we're doing today, we're questioning everything that's going on on the ground. People are starting to think about, okay, you know, am I looking at a stress situation? Uh, you know, what will happen if interest rates continue to rise? You know, how does the rest of the economy look? And I think that thought process is good. I think we may be going a little bit overboard because when you really look at what's happening in the economy today, uh, I'm bullish and I think our clients are very bullish. But to be fair, in terms of what your client, I mean, because growth, earnings growth is slowing down, right? And for the first time this last earnings season, we heard from some of the big tech companies with reports that were a little bit worse and that mm -hmm. even their growth rates are slowing down. But I'm just curious from 
today versus a year ago, which you're hearing from some of your clients? Are they slowing down loan growth? Are you, you know, are they less likely to go and spend on capital expenditures and get money to do that? Like, what's different from a year ago? Is there a little bit of a difference? So even from our own perspective at Connect One Bank, I would tell you that, yes, we're seeing some little bit of a slowdown, but it's slowing down from a high growth rate. Uh, it's not that we're going negative, and mm-hmm. I think that's what everyone needs to keep in perspective. And I think that's what we're hearing a lot from our clients is that, yes, things may not be as robust as they were a year ago or six months ago, but it's coming down from a very high growth target. And so I think things are still growing. Things are still feeling very good, maybe just not as good as it was before. And there's a lot of concern about does that continue in the future? 20 seconds. What would you hear from the Fed that would freak you out a little bit? Just quickly. Oh, if they took their foot off the pedal here and changed direction, I would be incredibly surprised. I would just be really surprised. Uh, But I think we will see a rate increase tomorrow, and I think we will get some dialogue that tempers what they're going to do going into 19. Good stuff. All eyes on Jay Powell on Wednesday. Frank (laughs) Sorrentino, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer for Connect One Bank, based in Inglewood, Cliffs, New Jersey, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. show at Bloomberg Businessweek goes long on cryptocurrencies, and that includes a story by our own Matt Winkler, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, uh, really looking into how we value manias, current and past, and that includes such things as digital currencies. Matt, nice to have you here in our studio. Great to be here. I love the coverage in the magazine. Jason and I have kind of really dug deeply into all of the stories. Tell us a little bit about you, you know, what you did specifically in terms of uh, the world of crypto, because I think valuation is a big story here. Try to figure this out. So it wasn't something I intended to do. I was having a conversation <laughs> with the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, catching up on a whole host of things. And he did mention that this issue would be devoted to Bitcoin. And what did I think? And the first thing that came to me were, were two words. I said, well, do you remember the late 90s and the dot-com boom, bust, bubble. I said, uh, cash earnings. And he looked at me and I said, that was how everybody justified these astronomical you know, valuations of companies that um, really didn't do anything yet. I mean, or didn't, didn't sell anything or make anything yet. They were mostly ideas. Some of them were good ideas, like Yahoo. But Yahoo um, you know, went up 120 times into 2000 and then it crashed and then it lost almost 80 percent of its value and the nasdaq which was the if you will place where all these dot-com companies got birthed um it didn't recover until after the financial crisis people forget that you know in the ensuing you know beginning of the new century uh the nasdaq was down from its highs in the 20th century did not recover until long after, you know, the financial crisis. So cash earnings is uh, what I thought of uh, and still think is kind of appropriate because it's uh, a bit of mental gymnastics. Nobody does cash earnings anymore, by the way. Uh, But it was widely embraced because people were looking for a way to justify something that you couldn't point to easily and say this has intrinsic value. And, you know, it's like uh, all manias. But if you have to work that hard to explain something, you've got to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe it's not really worth that then. (laughs) Um, You know, Warren Buffett, who doesn't need any introduction. Heard of him. When he 
you know, was asked uh, or is asked about Bitcoin, uh, you know, he uses one word. Uh, he says the joke. It's a joke. Really? Uh, um, and, you know, and again, he, he looks at it the same, sort of the same way. He says, I can't figure out how we get to uh, know there's intrinsic value here. And he's the ultimate value investor. Uh, he's, the, he's, the, he's what we look to to understand right. Graham and Dodd, which is value investing. So, um, you know, Bitcoin is fascinating. I think mostly because of blockchain, um, you know, that is something that I think does have a lot of merit, but that's different from just this cryptocurrency that we call Bitcoin. And so having seen a lot of these things come and go, you know, you talked about cash earnings and other people have, you know, sort of made similar uh, or have made other comparisons to things historically in, in the world of finance. How do you think this ends? Bitcoin. Okay, so you're asking a question that's way above my pay grade, there's mental capacity. There's to nothing. Be, that, there's not, no such thing, man. No, no, no. I'm not clairvoyant enough to know that. <laughs> um, most of the time, it ends badly. Yeah. Um, when you when you you really can't uh, come to an agreement, right? Um, in a transparent way about what the appropriate value is. It ends badly. And when isn't that one of the great ironies of this, is this was supposed to be, especially because of blockchain, this was supposed to be all about transparency, and yet quite the opposite in some ways has occurred around this. So I think you two, not too long ago on this very program, a few days back, were, were actually discussing uh, these, they look like automated teller machines. Yes. BTMs. Yes. How crazy and, is that? And, and, you know, that was a very interesting discussion you had then. And I, I couldn't help but, you know, think about it coming into this discussion today because, you know, <laughs> there, once again, you don't know what's really going on. Right. You have no idea. So it's not an ATM in the sense of, what we're used to. Right. Um, and yet there it is. There's this box or whatever sitting someplace. And- I, I feel like what you said too about blockchain being of real value, but it's going to take a while to figure it out. Or, I mean, I know in some emerging economies, they're already kind of playing around with this. Yeah. So like mobile, anything mobile technology, which of course is embraced exactly in those places, emerging markets where you don't have a lot of infrastructure mm-hmm. and where... Um, the technology um, that we've created in the 21st century supplants the traditional landlines and lots of other things that uh, enabled developed economies to get where they are today. So blockchain to me is very much in that vein, just like the mobile platform is the place where businesses converge, if you like, in Africa. Uh, There isn't a lot of infrastructure. There aren't great roads. There aren't landlines for... um, telephone communication, but there is a mobile device that brings everybody together, and that means you can do everything there. You can distribute and create information. You can transact business. You can create a business, etc. We're going to have more conversations with this, I know, in 2019. Thank you so much for dropping by. Matt Winkler, of course, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News, joining us in studio. This is Bloomberg Radio. You tell lies, thinking I can see the Beatles. We see Dave Wilson. We know it's going to be a good chart. <laughs> Down. I'm thinking he's talking about the uh, financial markets, equity markets. Just saying. In I a guess. manner of speaking, yes, indeed. <laughs> it's all on how you measure it. And 
The chart today focuses on what's happened to the S&P 500's price-earnings ratio over the course of the year and how that really compares with the sort of moves that you see during bear markets. Now, it's gotten worse today, as you can imagine. Uh, the, the P.E. is down about four and a half percentage points from where it ended last year. And if you go back historically, you find that there were only five time periods, five years, going back to the mid-1950s, where you had bigger declines in P.E. over the course of the year. So we're talking 1974, bear market. 2000, bear market. 1973, bear market. 2002, bear market. The one exception, 1994. And if that sounds familiar, you may remember my chart from last week talking about how we may end up with cash equivalents, treasury bills, beating stocks and bonds this year in terms of returns. So, okay, we're nowhere close to a bear market if you look at the S&P 500 itself. But if you look at what's happened to valuation this year, we might as well have been through a bear market. And just today, I should point out uh, the drop in the P.E. surpassed what we saw in 1962, which was also a bear market year. And uh, if you want to know more, folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it. And everything I do going forward, the email address is dwilson at Bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at Bloomberg.net. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Great chart of the day. Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg uh, Stocks Editor, joining us right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That is an interesting statistic because I do think, Jason, we're trying to figure out, okay, what comes next? So we have to start to look perhaps at history uh, in terms of the markets. So I'm looking at what's getting read on the Bloomberg today, and I feel like all we need to talk about, or we could Mm -hmm. spend the rest of the show probably just talking about stories about New York City one way or the other. The one that (laughs) I think jumped out to both of us was uh, the New York City subway chief. That's Andy Byford. You know, we got a chance to talk Mm -hmm. to him a couple weeks ago uh, at the year ahead. He warns of, I shouldn't laugh at this, but it's such strong language, quote, death spiral of New York City infrastructure, especially when it comes to the subways. Listen, he says you either you've got to invest as much as $40 billion over the next decade in some kind of overhaul or otherwise you get that death spiral. And I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes is a great piece and interview with him. You did a great sit down at the year ahead with him. And he showed certainly on the piece on uh, the TV side in terms of uh, 60 Minutes, but he talked he showed like the old equipment that people are using, like old switching systems. Uh, Anybody who rides the subways or mass transit here in New York City knows how much they are being pushed to the max and how many times there are problems just this this morning i was having troubles one of the things that he said during my conversation with him that he may have said on that interview too is that some of the stuff is so old the manufacturers have gone out of business decades ago so they actually have to make the replacement parts uh themselves maybe a happier new york city story uh google Google, listen to this, everybody. They're going to invest more than a billion dollars. Yep, one billion dollars to expand its New York City presence. Uh, they put this out in a blog post today. Uh, they've reached lease agreements uh, downtown. They signed a letter of intent, uh, and uh, I guess it's going to be called Google Hudson Square. So uh, this is a big, big uh, setup that they're doing, and it's fascinating, right? Because we have Amazon planning what they're going to do here, and I really feel like in terms of tech hub, New York has really uh, made some significant uh, inroads when it. 
it comes to a tech presence. I think the going down a level on that news too. It's also interesting for people who watch New York City real estate. Mm-hmm. We talked about Hudson Yards a lot. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about a lot of the development that's going on on the West Side. There's a massive shift happening. Obviously, we, there's a lot of attention paid to Long Island City. What's going to happen yes. there with Amazon? But here on the Isle of Manhattan, so much of the energy is shifting west, and this Google uh, campus of sorts that's going to be right down uh, that way on Washington Street is going to be just more uh, evidence of that. So you've got, you know, not just related, you've also got Brookfield investing heavily right. uh, in that corridor right there. They say the move could allow the company to more than double the current 7,000 people it employs in the city over the next decade. What I will say about that, and we've seen this in cities where everybody wants to live and work, is that it squeezes out a lot of other folks because affordability, as you said, Jason, uh, makes it very difficult for, you know, folks to kind of live, work, and play in these major cities. So Seattle I'm curious to see. Seattle is the cautionary tale there, right? Yeah, Dina Bass exactly. has done some great reporting. Dina and uh, Noah Buhire out in Seattle have done some work on that. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Monday and the first day of trading this week. Uh, it's a bearish one. In fact, we're pretty much at our lows. Looks like we're taking another leg down, 2.6% lower on both the S&P and the Dow Jones Industrial Average, now down about 626 points, and the NASDAQ down about uh, almost 2.9%, down 198 points. Let's talk about it with Oliver Portia. He's chief market strategist at Bruderman Asset Management, over $1.5 billion in assets under management in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Monday. So we're taking a look. Uh, you know, we've been lower all day today for the most part, um, Oliver, but we are picking up some momentum to the downside. What are we trading on right now? Well, I think it's a fear trade. Investors are exhausted. Investors are taking any piece of news as negative news. You saw it on Friday with great retail sales numbers, and yet we sold off sharply. Today, you had the uh, home builder sentiment that was weak, but not an unexpectedly weak. These are data points that we're expecting. So I think the Fed right now is deeply concerned. I mean, the investors are deeply concerned that the Fed has effectively engineered a recession through its combination of rate hikes and deleveraging of its balance sheet. And so Wednesday becomes critical. And to me, more than what they do with interest rates, it's about their statement looking forward. That's what's going to turn this around, if anything can. And and so how optimistic are you that there is going to be this turnaround? Because we're getting pretty deep into the year here. Well, I I think that it's uh, it's going to come down to two things or three things. One, the Fed talking about, hey, there's no recession on the horizon. We're doing well. Data points are mixed. So we're going to take a, a kind of a wait and see approach to future hikes. Uh, two, the trade war is clearly weighing on uh, market sentiment. Um, on the flip side of that, though, you've got record share buybacks. You've got the expectation of record dividends next year. Uh, corporate earnings are still going to grow at a relatively strong 8%. And given that we're off a 20% plus year in growth, uh, that's pretty impressive. So I think right now it's sentiment driven. And generally speaking, that corrects itself with a change in winds. And you could easily see a 7 8% rally mm-hmm. very quickly. 
what changes it though? What do we need to see as investors to say, okay, wait a minute, mm-hmm. is it? I keep saying, Jason and I keep talking about the importance of our kind of our next earnings cycle to see what CEOs actually have to say. We just had a yeah. bank CEO in. Mind you, it's a small market cap company. Um, but he said his customers, his clients, his business mm-hmm. customers, they're pretty upbeat. Yeah, the business customers, and I participate in the New York Fed uh, business leaders survey every month, and that continues to be upbeat. Um, you've got some divergence there. Corporate CEOs in a recent survey uh, were fairly pessimistic and concerned about 2019. Now, CFOs, by nature, tend to be pessimistic. That's just how they're built. Um, I, I think what turns it around, again, is a strong statement by the Fed. I think it's a some sort of clarity Uh, on policy with regards to trade. And then we have to see what happens when Democrats take over Congress in January and the risk of impeachment. Because while no one's really talking about it in terms of the market, my sense is that it's on the back of investor minds. But I wonder if that's what's changed. Is Is it the sentiment concern over Washington now being a split Congress and what maybe the Democrats do and what that does to our administration and what that does to kind of bigger, broader policies coming out of the United States? Yeah, I mean, it could be on the same token, November was a very strong month. Right, so the election happened in early November. You had a five percent, five and a half percent rally in the S and P 500 that month. So I'm not sure it's that much driven. And let's face it, as investors, we tend to like gridlock in a split Congress. Uh, that's not something that we're uncomfortable with from an investment perspective. Well, there's gridlock, and then there's going after it's, a president. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely correct. And and I think to me, it's really more about the economic story. Uh, in, in the last week and a half or two weeks, you've heard a lot more talk about recession, uh, greater slowdown. And to me, it's kind of gotten exaggerated. It's, it's gone too far. Where the optimism in, in the summer was way too high, mm-hmm. and everybody thought we were going to grow at double digits forever, I think at this point the pessimism is overdone. And uh, that corrects itself. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of names you like, because you know, one that jumped out to me that we talk about all the time, but I feel like we don't talk to a, a really hardcore in investor about why it continues to be a good stock is Amazon. Um, It's a stock that that you like. I feel like it's obviously widely held. We talk about it all the time from a consumer perspective. But help us understand the investment case as we go through 19 for Amazon. So Amazon is off 25% plus maybe 30% by now. I haven't looked at it in the last 10 minutes uh, off its highs. So we think that it is uh, partially a value play here. Mm. It is a absolute category killer. And with the consumer still being strong, and that was, again, that was reiterated in the retail sales numbers this past Friday, we think that it's an oversold situation and is going to continue to be a juggernaut. What Jeff Bezos has demonstrated time and time again to his detractors is that he knows how to execute. They're now going after unprofitable merchandise, so that's going to lift margins and improve their financial picture. Look, if the stock was at 2000 today, we probably wouldn't be buying it uh, in the portfolios. But at 1500 we think it represents a good valuation. It's down about 26% from that early November high. And valuations in the end, you're okay with that? When we look at Amazon, you're okay with that story? Understanding the growth component of it, yes. It's not a value stock by any measure. So you wouldn't put it in the value or conservative portfolio. But for growth-oriented investors, this is a great way to gain exposure to the retail sector, which you should have in an economy like ours. Do we? have to be concerned, though, if we start to see some kind of economic pullback come 2019 into 2020, since it is so playing into kind of the consumer space and retail? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. This is not a buy, hold, and forget about it. Right. Uh, uh, this is a momentum play. ExxonMobil. Yep. Talk to us about that, because, you know, energy has been such a fascinating 
sector, even just over the last couple months. You see WTI below $50, I believe, for the first time since October mm-hmm. 2017. We just had that headline uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. How do you play XOM? Well, it's a, it, look, it's, it's a wonderful company that's well diversified with a very strong balance sheet. It's gotten almost a 4.5% dividend. We think that oil uh, prices are uh, too low at this level. The fears of a global slowdown are exaggerated in our view. And so based on that and expecting somewhat of a stabilization to a rebound in oil prices, perhaps to the mid-50s or high-50s, that bodes well for oil companies like ExxonMobil. And it's just one of the strongest and the best ones out there. Just quickly, about 30 seconds, Southern companies, another play, got a 5.2% uh, Conservative. Dividend. Dividend. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a, it's a defensive play again. Right. No one's got rose-colored glasses on today, uh, and nor should they ever. Uh, this is a great way to get a good dividend that insulates you from market overreaction. Healthcare and utilities are two best-performing groups and the only ones in the green for 2018. There you go. Oliver Porsche, Chief Market Strategist for Bruderman Asset Management, here with us in our New York studio, managing over about $1.5 billion dollars. Great to catch up with you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.